1998, I was working at a, um, a large computer store that had, was, had just recently opened here in Wichita, and uh, it was perfect job for me because those of you, some of you may not know this, but I'm a complete computer and technology geek. I mean, that's my thing. Like, I love computers, and I love technology, and I love taking things, uh, uh, electronics apart and putting them back together. Um, I got my first computer, I think, when I was um, maybe 14, and I think I had it apart in a couple weeks and put it back together, and, you know, by the time I was 16, I had bought all these old computers and set up a big network in my room and figured out all these different network protocols I could experiment with. I told you I was a geek. Um, but... So I was, I was in this job, I, I hadn't been there long, and I was kind of getting used to it. And by the way, I had, you know, I had just recently taken the test to become a certified computer technician. And so I was pretty proud of that. And this was just like I was in the zone. And uh, I was a complete Microsoft Windows fan. Uh, and you know, at the time, Windows 98 was the thing. And uh, we, we were all really, really into it. And I had my training and my certification. And, um, so as far as I was concerned, the only kind of computers in the universe were Windows computers, and a lot of people believed that that was true with me. So when I went to start working at the store, um, I noticed, to my dismay, that there was this corner <clears throat> dedicated to a dying computer brand named Apple. <laughs> and they had ugly, slow machines that um, nobody seemed to really care about anymore. There were a few diehard Apple fans still out there, and, and you know, certainly in the education world, they were still pretty big, and, and they did have a little bit of a niche with creatives, but for the most part, nobody ventured over there, and I thought, what a waste of floor space. My goodness, why are we giving them square footage? And then all of a sudden, they, my boss came and announced to us that we were becoming the exclusive Apple dealer. Um, our store had signed a contract with Apple, and so our chain was going to be the exclusive Apple dealer. And I'm like, oh, great, we get to be the last ones on a sinking ship, you know? Um, because I understood that Apple was not doing well uh, as a company. And, and some of you know the history. I'm not obviously going to get deep into this, but um, you know, Steve Jobs co-founded the company and was, uh, whatever you think of him personally, he was a visionary in terms of technology and in terms of, of, of where that field would go. Visionaries, you can always tell a visionary from, from someone who's not because a, a visionary can almost instantly separate a transcendent idea from a pedestrian one or, or a transcendent opportunity from a pedestrian one, and that's what Steve Jobs was so good at. And so, you know, he had built this company and the company had grown really large, and the problem sometimes with large companies is they get to a point where they think they've outgrown their key leader, and that's what happened with Apple. And eventually, the CEO that actually Steve Jobs himself had brought in uh, sort of set up the, the dominoes so that um, while Steve might have still been a little bit of a figurehead, he was sort of shown the back door. Um, and so there was this separation. Uh, Jobs left the company, went and started some other stuff, and did his own thing. And for, ye for, for the years then after that, uh, the company didn't do too well. They didn't release a lot of great products, and uh, they went through... You know, they had a bunch of CEOs change over time, and, and they started losing money. And by the time 1998 rolls around, and I'm working at the uh, working at uh, this store, the word on the street was that Apple was really close to bankruptcy. And I had heard some rumors that Steve Jobs was back and that the company was going to turn around, um, but I really didn't care. As far as I was concerned, uh, it was a done deal, and I was just waiting for, for the funeral so that we could put some Windows computers over there in, in, in that corner. Um, so 
it was really surprising to me one day when, oh, by the way, just so you know, I can, like I always say up here, confession is good for the soul, so here's something you can, you can laugh at me over. But when uh, I remember it was, you know, I was working the floor and Y2K was a big deal. Somebody came up to me and said, are these Apple computers Y2K compliant? And I said, you don't need to worry about that. Apple computer will not be in business in the year 2000, you know. So anyway, there's a prediction that I made that didn't come true. Uh, but so I'm walking in, it's, it's the fall of 1998, and I want to say it was September, I'm pretty sure it was September, and I walk through and I'm headed to go clock in, because clock in was at the back of the store, and I look over in the Apple section, and there is something there that looks like nothing I have ever seen before in my entire life. It was a self-contained computer, and it was sleek, and it had beautiful clean, cor- clean, clean lines, and it was, it was colorful. It was green and translucent, and you could look through it, and you could see the, the inside of the computer, and, and, and it was all, all of the peripherals and everything were all very nice, and, and, and at the time, computers were ugly. And I saw this, and I thought, this is different. So I go up to my buddy. My buddy's setting the computer up, and he's a diehard Apple fan. He's been one of these people that through this whole deal has been, you know, Apple's great, Apple's the way to go, and I'm thinking, you are in denial, you know. But I walk up to him. He's setting up this computer, and I said, what is that? And he said, it's new. It's called an iMac. And I said, uh-huh. I said, we might actually be able to sell a few of those. And, uh, and he stepped back from it, and he said, it's a miracle. So I don't know if I go that far. And he said, no, I'm not talking about the computer. He said, Steve Jobs is back, and he's in charge. And I said, yeah, I, I heard something about that. And he said, no, 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 it's a miracle. It's a miracle that finally Apple wants to be saved, and the only person who can save it said yes. And man, that stuck with me. For some reason, I thought, isn't that how comeback stories work? Isn't that how turnaround stories work? You have a situation that gets so bad that there is only one person who can turn the situation around, and eventually the, 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 the company or the organization or the person or the situation that needs to be saved finally says, okay, we're ready to be saved, and that person steps in, and there's this huge turnaround. And that's what happened at Apple. And, and by the way, you say, Jonathan, are you a big Apple fan? I'm not really into companies. I'm not a, a fan of companies. What I'm a fan of is comebacks. And what you can see in that, look at, 19, look at the 1997's, uh, 1997 earnings report for Apple, and then fast forward to 2007. In 1997, Apple is on the verge of bankruptcy. In 2007, just 10 years later, they're turning a $900 million profit. So that, in my opinion, is a huge turnaround. And I'm interested in that. Because for every company that's on the verge of bankruptcy that does have something like that happen, there are a ton of companies that don't make it. And for me, there's a comparison there. Because I'm a relationship coach, that's what I do, or a marriage coach, uh, and I know that for every marriage that is right up against the line and falling apart, that somehow finds a turnaround and things begin to work in their favor, and all of a sudden they find positive trajectory in a negative situation. I know that for every time that happens, there are tons of times where that does not happen. And for every life, for every personal story, for every journey in this room, where a person says, I'm ready to give up, and I just don't feel like I'm ever gonna reach my destiny or my purpose, and somehow God turns that individual around and they experience God's best in their life, I also know there are a lot of stories of people who don't. So I always wanna understand, what is it about a comeback? What is it about a turnaround? How, what's different about a person that experiences that from someone else? And that's what we're gonna talk about as we kind of close out this series. Because we've been talking about an incredible turnaround story in the Old Testament, a book of Ruth. For most of us, 
It comprises two pages of our Bible. Just, just a few short chapters, a story of uh, what would seem like a relatively insignificant family in, in Judah that goes through some hardships and God works out some things for him and, uh, and, and there's a happy ending to it. But what's the significance? What's, how, how, how are we going to take it and make it mean something in our, in our life? That's what we're going to finish up the series with today. So be patient with me. I know many of you have been here with us for the last few weeks, and I know you've heard the story in segments a few times, but let me just really quickly recap. I'm not going to dwell on any specific point very long because I want to make sure we have time to get where we need to go. But the story of Ruth in the Old Testament starts off with a Jewish couple, uh, Naomi and Elimelech, and they're living in Judah. And at that time, uh, Israel was in trouble, and they kept making bad choices. Um, And what would happen is God would... God would communicate to his people that he wanted to be respected as their king, he wanted to be honored as their king, and, and he had standards for living, and he wanted them to make sure that they employed those for his glory and for their good, and then they would eventually decide they weren't interested in that, and they would go off and do their own thing, and they'd end up in trouble, and then they'd cry out to God and say, God, please help us, we're in trouble, and God would send somebody to rescue them, and for a little while, they'd be back online with God's purpose and then they'd start making bad choices again and then Israel would be back in trouble again. So you've got this just roller coaster ride of good times and bad times that Israel's going on. Elimelech and Naomi have been through this roller coaster ride and the finances are not looking good. Because of, whatever, because of everything the, com- the, the country's been through, Financially, they're not in very good shape. And so Elimelech says, look, we're going we're, we're gonna to go stay for a while in Moab because i got to go make some money, and then we'll come back eventually. Now, Moab, as we've talked about, was a terrible place. Uh, nobody had any business going there. there it, it, was, it was a place of, of tremendous sin, but more than that, it was a place that just had some terrible worship practices, and, and, and they placed an incredibly low view on human life. And so even though it was a sin zone, Elimelech said, we're going to go over there and, and camp out for a little while, make some money, move back. Now here's something, and this is, just a, this is for free. This is not part of the, the main message. But anytime you start camping out in a sin zone, and some of you know what I'm talking about because all of us have done this at some point in time. We've gone and we've camped out in a sin zone, not because we were planning on staying because it's not consistent with our character. We look at that sin zone and we say, that's not me, but I'm going to stay there for a little while. Just know that if you go camp out in a sin zone, don't be surprised when you get stuck and you can't get out. Because that's what happened with Ruth and uh, with Naomi and Elimelech. They moved to the sin zone, but then Elimelech dies, and now Naomi is stuck there. And she's got her and her two boys, Malon and Killian, and uh, so now they're living over here in Moab, and it's a bad situation, but the boys start dating Moabite girls, and eventually they get married. And so now you've got uh, these other two people in the house. You, uh, you've got Ruth and Orpah. So now it's kind of a family unit. Elimelech's dead, but it's kind of a family unit, and they keep pressing on. And then all of a sudden, Malon and Killian uh, die. And now you've got three ladies in a house all by themselves. It's kind of a male-dominated culture at the time, and guys were the breadwinners. Now they have no breadwinner in the house. And, and Naomi says, look, we can't just stay here. Uh, I'm going to go home. So she decides to go back to Judah. And on the way back, she tells the girls, hey, I, you know, I know, you're, wanting, I know you're following me back, but uh, uh, I don't really think that's wise. I think it's probably wisest if you go back to, to your home. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago. When we don't have hope, we tear things apart. So she's going to tear that relationship apart, send Ruth and Orpah back home and say, listen, y'all go back and, and, and you go back to your culture. Let me go back to my culture. This thing has been a train wreck from the beginning. Let's just try to forget this ever happened. 
And Orpah eventually does go home. I think it was a hard decision for her. I think the Bible bears that out. But Orpah eventually does go home. But Ruth will not. And it's interesting that the verbiage in the Bible is literally that Ruth threw her arms around Naomi and said, you cannot make me go. Right? And she said, your home's going to be my home. Your God's going to be my God. And your people's going to be my people. So Naomi says, okay, you can come with me. So now you've got Ruth and Naomi. They go back to Judah. And Naomi starts to take over the business of trying to manage Elimelech's remainder affairs, the property that Elimelech had owned and those sorts of things. And we talked about the fact that Ruth wanted to contribute. She wanted to do something productive. So she went to Naomi and she said, I heard you guys have this law, you know, that when harvesters are harvesting a field, if, if, if grain falls off the stalks while they're trying to, you know, load it up or, or harvest it or whatever, they're not allowed to pick it up. We get to pick it up because we're poor and we need food to eat. And then also, I know that they're not allowed to cut the corners of the field. They're not allowed to harvest the corners because those are to be left for, for poor people like us. Why don't you let me go try to harvest some grain? At least we'll have food to eat. And Naomi says, okay, go ahead, right? So then we learned that she ends up I believe by God's design, but she ends up in the field of a man named Boaz, remember? And Boaz just happens to be coming in one of the days that she's there, and he asks about her, who is this girl? And they say, well, this is, this is uh, Ruth. It's Naomi's daughter-in-law that moved back with her from Moab. And there's this interaction between Boaz and Ruth, and, and, and Boaz tells her how much he respects uh, what she's done and how much he has... Uh, um, uh, positive regard for the decisions that she's made. And then he goes and he tells his guys, listen, I want you to make sure that you intentionally make sure that grain is falling off the stalks. I want you to make sure you leave some handfuls on purpose for her that she'll, that, that she'll be able to pick up. And, and, and I want you to just let her gather right as though she works with us. I want you to treat her as though she was one of my workers because she's special to me and I want to make sure that she's provided for. And then we talked about how that Ruth then will take all this grain that she's collected and takes it back to Naomi. Now keep in mind, the idea here was, or not the idea, but what was normal was a person who was gleaning would get some grain, not very much, would go grind it out, and then would come home, and they'd have a couple handfuls maybe of grain if they were fortunate. And so scholars think, I mean, I've heard all kinds of estimates all over the page of how much Ruth brought home. One scholar felt pretty sure that we were talking roughly about 70 pounds of grain. That's a lot more than a couple handfuls. She shows up at, you know, at the house where Naomi is and says, hey, this is, this is what I took in today. And Naomi says, what in the world happened? Right? And she said, well, I met this guy named Boaz, and you know, he seemed really nice, and it just seemed like they were being extra nice to me, and he doesn't want me to go anywhere else. He wants me to keep going back to that field. And Naomi says, well, there's something special you ought to know about Boaz. He, he's, he's qualified to do something here. Now, in the culture in Israel, there was a law, it was in the law of Moses, that talked about how to redeem something that was lost. And simply put, let me, let me say this, family lines were very, 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 very important in this time. And so when a husband passed away, there were two concerns. One was, there was a concern that if he was the breadwinner, if the property that they owned which was considered part of that family's inheritance from God. If the property that they owned then had to be sold because there was no breadwinner, then that was a potential problem for that family line moving forward. Also, if there was a husband and wife and the husband passed away but there was no son, 
then there would be no one to carry forward the family's name. There would be no one to carry forward the family's line. In either case, those were considered really bad things. And so in the law of Moses, there, there was a, a stipulation about what should happen in either of those cases. If, if a man died and his family was getting ready to have to sell the land to survive, it was, it was expected that a, another male relative who was close would step in and buy it so that, the, so that the property would remain in the family uh, and so that that widow and, their, and, and kids, the, the widow's kids could be taken care of. Then there was the other law that said if there was a husband and wife but no son and the husband dies, then it was expected of that man's brother to marry the widow so that there could be a son born and that son would be treated as though he was the son of the father who had passed away so that that family line could continue going forward, which is also a great way to ensure that your family vets whoever you're dating. Right, because you know, if your brother brings somebody you know home to meet mom and dad, and she's not nice, you know, you say, "Listen, buddy, if you keel over, I gotta marry her. So pick somebody nice. Pick somebody nice, you know." Um, but in any case, so now you've got in in this situation with Ruth, you have both things happening. There is nobody to carry on the family name and there is land that is in jeopardy, and Naomi's saying, hey, listen, Boaz, is a, he, he, he's a close male relative. He, he technically could step in here. He, he could do something. And so do you remember we talked about this uh, last week that uh, Naomi gave Ruth some instructions at the end of the harvest. She said, I want you to, I want you to freshen up and take a bath and put on, uh, put on your nice clothes, and I want you to go down to the threshing floor, and I want you to wait until the harvest is completed, wait until they have the big party, wait until everybody's you know, had the big dinner and, and everybody's eaten and they've drunk and they've had, a, you know, they've had the whole celebration. Wait till the whole thing's over and everybody's going uh, to sleep. And she said, now, now Ruth, here's what's going to happen. That, you know, every, well, she didn't say this, but I'm just going to assume she did. There's going to be this big pile of grain in the middle, and all the guys are going to sleep around the edges with their heads in towards the grain and their feet out. Now, that's so that nobody could steal the grain. Grain was like cash. And so uh, what the guys would do until it was time for them to be able to take it into town, they would, stay, they, they would sleep like spokes in a wheel out around the grain so that if anybody tried to steal it, it would wake them up. And she said, I want you to go to where Boaz is, and I want you to take the, the covering, the outer covering that's over his lower legs and feet, and I want you to take it off. And, and she said, and so she gives, him, gives her this instruction to do that, and, and from an American point of view, in our culture, that makes absolutely no sense. She says, when you do that, he'll tell you what to do. But from our culture, we go, what in the world does it mean to uncover somebody's feet? That doesn't make any sense. But in the, in the culture, in the, in, in the Israelite culture, it meant something huge. See, to, to cover someone with the outer covering of, of your garment or with your cloak or with something that was considered an outer garment, to cover someone with that meant that you were claiming that person. It meant that you, you were saying, this person belongs to me and I'm taking responsibility for them. For instance, in a, in a Jewish wedding at that time, there were, it was very different than what we would do for a wedding. It was a long feast and celebration, several, you know, lasted over the course of days and was a big deal. But one of the big things that happened at the very end of the wedding was the groom would take his outer garment and would cover his new bride with that outer garment as a signification that he's saying, her well-being is my responsibility. I'm taking responsibility for her and she belongs to me. Which every time I say that, I think some folks chafe at that and go, well, that's like saying 
somebody owns you. No, it's not. Listen, psychologists tell us that one of the, one of the biggest things that's missing in our life, in our culture today, is a, is a sense of, of true attachment or a sense of true belonging, that we belong with somebody. When attachment is there, we do well. When attachment is not there, we don't do well. And that's what's, that, that is what is happening here. When the person puts that, that covering over the other person, they're saying, we are attached. They belong to me. I belong to them, and I'm responsible for their well-being. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here, but if you're familiar with the Old Testament and you've read the story of Elijah, say, for instance, the prophet Elijah, and you know that when God had him connect with the prophet Elisha, and Elisha was going to end up being the, the, the next um, prophet in Israel, that Elijah took his, his mantle or his cloak or his, his outer shawl and cast it onto Elisha and then walked away. And so as a result of that, we've even developed a phrase. And some folks who've never read this Bible story use the phrase passing the mantle this this leader is passing the mantle on to this person or this is you know there's a there's a CEO passing the mantle on to the next CEO it has nothing to do with a leadership transition it has everything to do with Elijah saying I'm claiming this person I'm taking responsibility for this person I'm taking them under wing and I use that phrase taking them under wing on purpose do you know where we get that in in this time, the, the outer garment that a Jewish man would wear would have fringes, and the, the, the outside of the most outer garment would tend to flap in the, in the wind, and it, it, it became referred to as the wings of that garment. The inside part of the lowest part of the outer garment was, was the wings of that garment. And so when we talk about taking someone under wing, what we're talking about is this idea that to spread your outer garment over someone or something is to take responsibility for them and to say they belong to me and their well-being is my responsibility. And so look with me at Ruth chapter two, verse 12. This is back a couple chapters from where we pick up. But remember what Boaz said to Ruth? Check this out. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. So Boaz isn't talking about God like God is a bird with these big wings, and, and, and so, uh, you know, Ruth has come to stay under his wings for refuge. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, you have asked God to claim you. You've gone to God and said, God, I want to belong to you, and if anybody in this world is going to be responsible for my well-being, I want you to be responsible for my well-being. That is what Boaz is saying he respects so much. But now, as a result of Naomi's instructions, Ruth is going to Boaz, and she's saying, I want you to claim me. I want to belong to you, Boaz. So in chapter 3, it says that around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up. And I'm not surprised that he did. It, at that time, it got very cold at night. Um, and so my hunch is that when she uncovered his lower legs and his feet, he got cold enough to wake up. And it says he turned over, and he was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me. So that's what we're talking about. For you are my family redeemer. So there were two things here that needed to be redeemed. There was the land, because Elimelech had some land that was in jeopardy, and there was a relationship, because there was Ruth. And what are we talking about when we say needed to be redeemed. You know, in Christianity, it's a word we use a lot, redeemed, redemption. But what does it really mean? I'll give you an example. 
Suppose somebody were to steal my wedding ring. They wouldn't be able to because you know how, how it works. Wendy slipped it on my finger, and then as soon as we got married, she started fattening me up, so now it won't, uh, now it won't come off. But, but say, for instance, that somebody stole my wedding ring, and they took it to a pawn shop, and they pawned it. And then I search all over Wichita for my ring. I'm trying to find out where in the world did this ring go. And, 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 and I finally find this pawn shop that has it. And I look at the inscription on the inside of the ring. And I know it's mine. And I say, that's my ring. Give it back to me. And uh, the guy says, sure. Here's the pawn ticket. Pay this much and it's yours. Right? Once I pay the price for that ring, I have redeemed it. It wasn't fair that it was stolen from me. And that's the thing. In the, in the biblical sense, to redeem something is to pay the price to get something back that was lost or stolen. So it's not my fault that somebody stole my ring, but by paying the price to get it back, I have reclaimed it. I have redeemed it. It belongs to me. It is my responsibility now. And that is exactly what we're talking about. So when Ruth says, spread the covering, spread the wings of your garment over me, I want to belong to you. I want to be redeemed. That is what she's saying. So Boaz responds, he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. And this gives me a chance to mention something, and I really don't have time to, but just because it has come up. Somebody recently has asked me as we've been in this series, Jonathan, if there were two other guys that technically were close family members who potentially could have redeemed the situation, why did Ruth have to go and reach out to Boaz? Why didn't either of these guys come to her? I think there's two reasons. One is this. Technically, technically, it was the brother's responsibility to marry the widow. Now, the spirit of the law was that whoever was a close male relative would step up. But if you went by the letter of the law, it was brother's responsibility. And so because Malon and Killian were both dead, nobody was absolutely in the hot seat required to do this. And I think it's important to keep in mind that Ruth is a Moabite. And very few good, upstanding Jewish men would have anything to do with a Moabite woman. I think that's why nobody was knocking down her door saying, please, would you marry me? Now, as far as Boaz is concerned, I think Boaz thinks he's too old. You know, I've seen a lot of estimates about how, how old Boaz is at this point. Um, but almost everybody agrees that he's over 60. And so personally, I think he saw Ruth and said, you know, she's she's going to find somebody who's a lot younger than me and has money and can take care of her and she can kind of move past the whole history of what she's had going on before and good for her. I hope she's well taken care of. But when Ruth says, I want you to claim me, look at what he says. You have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. I think that's why Boaz hadn't stepped up yet. But he's certainly ready to step up now. He says, don't worry about a thing. I'll do what's necessary for everyone in town knows you're a virtuous woman. But then things get sticky. Because he says, while it is true that I'm one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning I'll talk to him. And if he's willing to redeem you, very well, let him marry you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. And now, as we said last week, Ruth has done all that she can do. She just has to wait. And that's a lot of what we talked about um, a week ago was the importance of, of waiting for God to move. Uh, because Naomi told Ruth, um, you need to wait and see how the matter will lie because the man will not rest until, uh, until the matter is settled. Uh, so here's what happens. Boaz goes to the gates of the city, which basically served as the city's courtroom, and he, he gathered 10 elders, which basically are going to serve as like a judiciary committee, and, and he finds the guy who, um, 
is the nearer kinsman or the, the person who's a closer family member to Ruth. And he says, we need to talk. And this is what, this is what he says uh, in, in um, chapter uh, 4. But I said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She's selling the land that belonged to Elimelech, and I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. And if you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. And the man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. And I think if you're Ruth, this has to be a tough moment. She already loved one man that she had to say goodbye to. And now she's asked to be redeemed by Boaz. She's developed a connection with him and a bond with him, and she's asked to be redeemed by him. And he was willing to, but now there's this other joker in the picture that she doesn't even know. And this guy's saying, sure, sounds good to me. And now she's stuck with this guy. But Boaz has something up his sleeve. Look at this. A little later there in chapter 4, Boaz told him, now, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land and the family. Then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I can't do it. Now, why did Boaz do it that way? I mean, why did he stage the question? Why did he start with the land and then just tack on at the end? Oh, by the way, this is the issue of Ruth. I think Boaz wanted everybody to know who really loved Ruth and who didn't. Because it wasn't about the land. The reason that the, the nearer family member said no in the end had nothing to do with the land. It had to do with Ruth. Ruth was the deal breaker. And for Boaz, the deal had nothing to do with land. He had plenty of land. It was all about Ruth. Boaz, I think, wanted everyone to know that he cared deeply for her. So then Boaz makes this announcement. He says, your witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon, and with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow, uh, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in the hometown. You are all witnesses today. And then the rest is history. Ruth and, and, and Boaz have a wedding and they get married and you, you see somebody like Ruth going from destitute trying to go pick up a few handfuls of grain to find a way to uh, m- make a meal to continue to exist and all of a sudden she is walking everywhere uh, next to an incredibly respected man who has this incredible status in, the, in, in, in Israel and, and she, she and him have this life together that they start and it's not too long after that that a baby boy shows up on the scene whose name was Obed who would be the father of uh, Jesse and the grandfather of King David. And then don't forget Naomi, she's a part of this. Look at this uh, in verse 16. Uh, Naomi took the baby, this was Obed, uh, and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. And the neighbor women said, now at last Naomi has a son again. See, this is the thing about comebacks and turnarounds. They don't just restore one person. They seem to kind of, kind of restore other people who happen to be in the zone. Remember, uh, President Reagan said, a, a rising tide lifts all ships. It's like when God starts to work that turnaround and, and give you that positive trajectory in a negative situation, it doesn't just touch your life, it touches the life of other people around you. God doesn't just restore one person, he, he gives you restoration, and then it starts to overflow onto the other people in your life. So what do we do with this story? I mean, we've made lots of applications and talked about how this can uh, affect the way that we think about our lives and, and about what God wants for us. But in total, if we take the whole book of Ruth and we look at it, 
what's significant about it and, and, and what can we do with it for our lives? Well, let's, let's take a look at what the book of Ruth is in the first place. If, if Ruth were a play or a drama, we could divide it into two acts, right? Act one would be bad decisions lead to disconnection. And that's pretty straightforward and most of us have experienced that, right? We make a bad choice or a bad decision, something that separates us from God's character. It's either a sinful decision or maybe it's just an impractical decision or a bad decision, but ultimately there were consequences of that. There, were dis- there was disconnection from uh, uh, our purpose or disconnection from a relationship or disconnection from a job um, or <laughs> disconnection from our money, maybe, if it was, if, depending on what kind of bad decision it was, but bad decisions lead to disconnection. And then act two, is selfless love leads to a turnaround, right? Isn't it interesting then that that's kind of a microcosm of what the whole Bible is about anyway? That's why we talk about Ruth as being a type or, or uh, of how it is a picture that God left in the Old Testament to sort of show off what God was gonna do later in the world because we do see in the Bible this bad decisions leading to disconnection. You find it back in Genesis. God puts man in a perfect environment and, and a perfect relationship, and there's a perfect marriage and this perfect uh, um, connection with God or bond with God between the original human beings, and then Satan shows up on the scene. And, 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 and keep in mind that God has handed over authority of earth to uh, Adam and Eve. He says, I want you to take charge, and I want you to manage um, this planet, I want, you to, I want you to manage this. And then all of a sudden, Satan shows up and Satan says, I don't understand why you're not doing things your way. After all, who is God to tell you what to do? And the next thing you know, man is handing over the keys to this planet to Satan. And ever since then, it's been a broken world. Bad decisions lead to disconnection. But then we open up the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we read about a selfless love that led to a turnaround because the Bible said that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this planet so that he could pay the price that we could never pay, so that he would let men put nails through his hands and through his feet, and so that the, the, the blood that he would shed would become a payment for the things that we've done wrong so that we could be restored and be redeemed, and that which was lost could be gained back, even though it was not God's fault that we were lost. It was, he was willing to pay the price so that he could get us back, and that's why Ruth is so important. It, 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 sheds, uh, it sheds some light a little bit onto what, would, what was to come and what God was going to do for us, but beyond that, it shows us a little bit of the character of the God who redeemed us. I mean, why is the book of Ruth so special? Well, it teaches us that Boaz didn't redeem Ruth because he had to. He did it for love. Some of us, we need to understand that because we think God is mad at us and God is always gonna be the person in the sky who's seeing everything that we do wrong and wants us to feel shame and wants us to feel guilty and thinks that we're, wants us to feel like we're never gonna live up to his expectations. He's, just, he's somehow standing up there with some sort of um, you know, uh, God-sized ruler to wrap, our, wrap us on the knuckles when we do what's wrong. And, and so we feel disconnected from God. We don't, we don't feel like we're in a relationship with him. We know that we've trusted him, but the relationship feels strained and it feels like there's distance because we feel like maybe God, maybe God is just out there to, to, to make me feel bad about myself. And that's not what the message of Ruth is. The message of Ruth is that God loves us and that's why he redeemed us. John three sixteen. remember? The reason that God was a redeemer is because of how much he loved this world. So if it is God's nature to redeem, and this is where we'll finish, this is where we'll spend the last few minutes this morning. If it is God's nature to redeem, and if it is God's nature to effect a turnaround in people's lives, why is it so rare? Why is it such a rare thing to see somebody find positive trajectory out of their negative circumstance? 
Well, I think it's because there's two things that have to be right for a, for a comeback, for a turnaround. There's two conditions that have to be set right, or two internal knobs that we have to make sure we have adjusted right. And if we don't have these adjusted right, it's never going to happen. And so I think a lot of people just aren't set up for a comeback. They don't have a platform in their life for a turnaround. And so if this is something that you're interested in, I'm going to give you two things, two really brief, simple things that are conditions that must be met in your life for a turnaround. Here's the first one. You have to know who to ask. You have to know who to ask. Not, not everybody could be a kinsman redeemer. You had, there were a couple qualifications. Number one is, uh, you had to have the funds. You cannot buy back a relative's property if you do not have the money. So it was expected that in order to be a kinsman redeemer, you had to have the funds in your bank account to do what was required to redeem what was lost. That's why it was so important. Remember what my buddy at the Apple store said? He said it was the only person who could step in and change things. And when things get bad enough, that is exactly where we end up. Some of us are in a Christian life situation right now, uh, or, or maybe it's, you don't even have a relationship with God. All you know is that you're in a place now where you're so stuck, you know the only person that could step in now is God, because he's the only person who has the funds to actually affect a change. By the way, the other qualifications, there were two qualifications, right? The person had to have the have money, had to be able the other one is he had to be willing. Nobody could force a kinsman to redeem anything, even if they had the funds. Had to be willing. Had, had, they, they had to want to. Why? Because anytime a, a rescuer steps into a broken situation, it means they have to risk. You, 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 you can read the stories of all these beautiful turnaround stories in business where you have a business that's just tanking and somebody steps in and, and has the brilliance to turn it around. But the one thing that all of us have to agree is that that CEO who decides that he's going to, to go ahead and step onto that sinking ship, he might go down with the ship. There is always risk for a person to rescue something that is, that is going downhill fast. And so you had, had to be somebody who was willing. And I just say that because... Every once in a while I talk to somebody who says, Jonathan, I just am really struggling with this idea that New Spring is saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven because New Spring seems to be such a forward-thinking church and they seem to have such a gracious spirit about them. And, and, and by the way, thank you for those, uh, when, when we hear those things, that really, the idea that people feel that we are warm towards individuals as a church, as, as staff, that makes us feel good and I hope as a church, uh, as a church family it makes you feel good. But the, the funny thing is someone will tell me, well, because of all those things, it makes no sense to me that you say Jesus is the only way to heaven. To that I have to say, it really doesn't matter um, what I say. What matters is what the Bible says. And in John, the Bible says that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So ultimately, the only thing that matters is that this is what Jesus said, and the Bible tells us that it's truth. But the thing about it is, ultimately, as a human being, I look at all the things that I've done wrong, and I understand they add to my rap sheet. Everything that I, every bad choice that I've ever made, and every time I could have made a good choice and I didn't, adds to my debt adds to the things in my life that have to be paid for before I can have a relationship with a perfect God. And so as somebody who's still trying to pay off my student loans, I understand how difficult it is to get out from underneath debt, and I understand how big someone would have to be to pay off the things that I've done wrong. So I'm just saying, I'm not tremendously surprised that there's only one way to heaven. I'm surprised that there is a redeemer out there who has the capacity, the funds, and the willingness to pay for everything that is on my rap sheet. That's why I love Jesus Christ. It's gonna be very difficult for someone to tell me it's unfair that Jesus Christ prepared a way to heaven for me because I'm thinking it is amazing that Jesus did that for me because it's, it's hard to fathom that that's even possible. So you have to know who to ask. 
Whether, whether what you want redeemed is your eternal destiny or, or your purpose or your particular situation, you gotta be dealing with somebody who has the ability and the willingness. Here's the second part, and that is you, you have to want to be claimed. You have to wanna be claimed. Remember, Ruth showed up on that threshing floor and said, spread the covering of your garment over me. She said, I wanna belong to you and I want you to take responsibility for me and this is where I get stuck as a believer because while I do want God's will in my life, I want my control over my life. But the problem is responsibility and control cannot be separated. They, they're, they're together. Where, and let me tell you, the, tell you a quick story. It has nothing to do with this sermon, but being a pastor's son who works for my dad, who's a senior pastor here, it's always fun to dish the dirt on, on him and my mom. And <clears throat> so I almost never saw my parents fight, um, but we did usually take a few cross-country trips in a little teeny tiny Volvo every year for my dad to go somewhere and speak. And I don't know if this has been your experience in your family, but the easiest way to get a family into conflict is to tuck them into a tiny car and send them on a 14-hour road trip. <clears throat> so we'd be on the way somewhere, and my parents would get into a conversation. It would get a little tense. Now, here's what you need to know about my parents. There's a couple ways that they usually resolve their fights, and I think I can now say authoritatively as a person who works as a couples coach that the two ways my, my parents resolve their fights Neither one of them's normal, right? The, the first one is, they'll be in the middle of this conversation, but then something about the situation will tickle one or the other, and they'll start laughing about it. Now, here's the problem with that. All of us know that eventually, someday, we'll laugh about this, whatever this happens to be. It is not fair that God gave my parents the ability to laugh about it now. I don't appreciate that. But all of a sudden, one of them will start laughing, and the other one will get tickled that the other one is tickled, and then they'll start laughing together, and all of a sudden it goes from tense to goofy, and that's not normal. Right? Or the other way is, and this totally just defies everything I've ever taught couples about the way things work, but they'll be in the middle of a conversation going back and forth and kind of expressing their conflicting viewpoints, and then all of a sudden one of them will go, you know, that's a really good point. I think this is my fault. Now that's not normal. But I'll tell you, the, the, one that, the one that always stood out to me is the weirdest fight, the fight ending of all time. And if someday if my dad wants to tell you about what he thinks is the weirdest one, let him have at it. This is my week to preach. I'm going to tell you what I think was the, the weirdest one of all time. We're, we're going down the road. We're on this long trip. We're trying to get somewhere. My mom's got the map out. She's trying to navigate. And I don't know where we were, but wherever we were was not where we were supposed to be. And my dad was explaining to my mom how important it was that he get the right instructions to make sure that we end up where we needed to be. And my mom said, now, Mark, you know you can't blame a passenger for the destination. <laughs> and my dad pulled over. And he looked over at her and he said, Mary Alice. And I thought, okay, here it comes, finally. Right? Now my parents are going to be normal. We're going to fight like normal people. You know? And he said, Mary Alice, that would make a great sermon. You know? <laughs> it's not normal. It's not normal. But it does make a great sermon. Because so many of us, we've got God in the passenger seat, but we want to hold him responsible for our destination. We say, God, I want your will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, tell me what your will is. Tell me what your will is for this relationship. Tell me what your will is in this situation. Tell me what, this, what your will is about this job. I want you to speak into my life, pour into my life. Tell me what it is that you want. But oh, by the way, I still want to drive. And God says, it doesn't work that way. Either, the, either my covering is over you and I'm responsible for you and you belong to me, which means you submit to me, which means you will do what I ask you to do, or it's kind of your, it's your show. 
See, we have to want to be claimed. But if we do, there's a beautiful promise. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, and this is where we're going to start closing it down. The prophet says, but for, from, the, from God, this is the message. For you who fear my name, for those of you who will belong to me and do what I ask you to do, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. So the Bible is saying there is going to be restoration. How many of us need recovery from injury? We need recovery from injury in a relationship. We need recovery from injury in a job. We need recovery from injury in what we've been through financially. We need recovery from injury because other people have hurt us. And God says, if, if you're willing to belong to me and you're willing to, to, to let me take you under wing, there's healing there. I can help you recover from the injury. And here's what's so cool. If you flip over to the book of Luke in chapter 8, you, you, you meet this woman who had this medical condition and she was in a lot of trouble because she was, she was just consistently um, um, very, very unwell and she had gone to a lot of doctors and the doctors had just made her sicker and also cost her all the money that she had. Now she had nothing. But she had read Malachi and she had read that in the, in the, the inner part of, her, of, 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 of the Messiah's outer garment at the bottom, there would be healing and she took it literally. And when Jesus passed by, she said, if I could just touch that part of his garment, I know I would be healed. And so we have this beautiful story of this woman who comes up to Jesus and touches the, the hem of his garment as he passes by. And all of a sudden Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? And Peter, who is always good to correct God for when he's wrong, says, listen, there's a lot of people touching you. I don't know why you asked that. And he said, no, somebody deliberately touched me. He said, I want to talk to the person that deliberately touched me. Here's where I, here's where I have to close. And man, we are already into overtime. There are a lot of people who bump into God. You know? A lot of people who, who have casual contact with God. They're part of the crowd that presses in and presses around and bumps into him. But there is something that Jesus differentiates when somebody deliberately touches him to say, I want you to claim me, I want to be redeemed. So I don't know what your situation is. Maybe the situation is that you've never had a relationship with God. There's never been a connection there, and that needs to be redeemed. And so Jesus says, you have to deliberately touch me. You have to want to be claimed. Or there's somebody in this room who would say, it's my purpose that needs to be redeemed. I don't know why I'm on this planet and what God has for me, and it feels to me like it's lost. Then Jesus says, you've got to deliberately touch me. Or somebody would say, I'm in a situation, and it keeps messing up, and I don't know what to do in this relationship, or I don't know what to do in this specific situation in my life. Then you have to deliberately touch him. And you have to say, I'm willing to submit to you and let this be your show. But the Bible says that when we do, there is healing in his wings. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Be with us in this next moment, I pray. As heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed, if you're in this room, and I know we're in overtime, but if you're in this room, you say what? I've never reached out to Jesus and intentionally touched him so that my eternal destiny could be redeemed and I could know I was going to heaven the moment that I stepped off this, uh, this planet. I'm gonna give you the words to a very simple prayer and you can follow along and you can say this silently in your head to God. And if you do, he will redeem you. Here we go. This is that prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you care enough to pay for what I've done wrong. I ask you to claim me. I believe that you died and rose again for me. And I ask you to forgive me for what I've done wrong. Thank you, Jesus, for redeeming me. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, everybody look this way for just a moment. If you just prayed that prayer with me, do me a favor, would you? Take that talk to us card back to guest services. Let them know that you prayed along. They have something they'd like to give you. Thanks so much for being here. Next week we celebrate mom.